once upon a midnight dreary. I was pondering that rather faded cliché, the devil made me do it. How that tired old phrase has been used in infinite variations to explain some cruel and irrational and benign human beings. The fear of possession by some brutal and savage demon lurks there in the shadowed cavern of our minds, along with other dreads. Fear of the dark, fear of solitude, fear of death. I imagine they all fit within that greatest of all fears, the fear of the unknown. But then I think that in these modern times there is so little left of the unknown. Is not the dark merely absence of light? Solitude, nothing more than sanctuary away from a crowded world? And death, well, it is inevitable, yet there, there be few among us who have not led it a merry chase. But what of demonic possession? Can it not be understood through the science of psychology? Ah, but my musings continue, for if such things can be so easily explained away by enlightened folks such as you and I, what is it that we still fear about them? Hello. And welcome to the special spooky October edition of Physical Media Isn't Dead. It's undead. Ah, so here we are at my favorite month of the year, October, where we get to pretend to be beings that we aren't and freak each other out and commune together and the human experience of just being scared to death but also the cozy experience of fall and I don't know I just there's there's nothing quite like October and there's nothing quite like horror movies and there's nothing quite like horror adjacent and spooky things so I wanted to make this episode very special by requesting some things that may have been outside of your purview for the month, something to uh, spend the rest of fall and the winter months digging your way through. So very simply, we have three very large titles this month, one of which my pick of the month is for the first time ever on this podcast, a television show, one very influential television show where I've brought back a special guest from a past edition of this podcast to talk about their bona fides uh, with one of the shows that this show influenced. But in addition to that show, we have releases from Arrow Video in the form of a yokai monster collection box set that I'm very excited to get to at the end of this episode. But first up, before I get to either the TV show or the yokai monster box set, first we have to discuss Lamberto Bava and Dario Argento's duology of nightmare logic splatter giallo hybrid demons and demons 2 the preview you are about to watch is for a movie that is unlike any you have ever seen before it is for a movie that goes beyond temporary fear to everlasting terror it is a movie called demons 
Yes, the demons are coming, and they're coming for you. Warning, if you have the courage to see demons, sit near an exit. Otherwise, you might never get out. In your theater, who will survive the touch of the demons, and who will not? Demons. From Synapse Films, we have their recent re-release of one of their more popular titles, Demons and Demons 2. Before anyone yells at me, I know right before this I said these movies are a combination of Jalo and Splatter, and they're not actually Jalo. I know Jalo heads out there will get real mad if you misname anything as a Jalo film, as I learned so many years ago when I called Suspiria a Jalo film. But what I meant to say is that it has a uh, Jalo pedigree behind it, and there are some very faint elements of Jalo within this film. I mean, its lineage, it is directed by Lamberto Bava, who is the son of famed Jalo director Mario Bava, uh, and it is produced by Dario Argento, uh, debatably the king of Jalo, depending on who you ask. Before we get into specifications of characteristics of Jalo, what is what are demons? What is demons? Who is demons? Uh, <laughs> Demons and Demons 2 are a 1985 and 1986 film, as I said, directed by Lamberto Bava. And plot, if you want to call them plots, uh, of the first film is that a woman played by Natasha Hovey is intercepted by a man wearing a strange metallic chrome mask over half his face, almost like a Phantom of the Opera, who gives her a ticket to a preview screening of a film in which she asks for a second ticket. Uh, to give to her good friend and they are at the screening of this film along with a lot of other unsuspecting theater goers including a pimp and his two sex workers couples on dates a blind man and his handler and many many other character archetypes when all of a sudden the film that's playing on screen in the movie featuring a mask that when it scratches you you become this demon figure they have one within the theater and people who have touched it or you know as they're watching the movie they get scratches on their face they turn into demons and they and the demons in this film almost act like zombies like once you become a demon and you scratch or bite somebody else they will eventually become a demon and to the chagrin of the theater goers within the film as they try to escape the theater, they find that it is locked and they are trapped and they have nowhere to go. The second Demons film follows this up by, instead of it having be a movie theater and a something on film, a horror film is playing on television in this essentially yuppie prison hold is the best way to describe it. They, they talk about how it's like super secure and that the windows are bulletproof in this television movie starts playing, uh, has imagery very reminiscent of uh, a Videodrome with like things coming out of the television. The same thing kind of starts happening. There are multiple characters in this apartment, which kind of breaks it up. It's interesting in that while it is somehow more ambitious than the first Demons, it almost is less ambitious in its execution. But before I get into that, yes, these are, Italian horror films and they're specifically Italian splatter films that I had watched this original 
Synapse Films release in 2013, around the time when it came out, a good friend of mine and past guest of the podcast, Peter Schomburg, had bought them. We put them on on a whim around this time of the year, and the years had passed, and I had kind of thought I had vaguely dreamed these movies, that I knew about them, and I had definitely seen them, but if someone asked me about them, I couldn't relay plot points, and that is because the films themselves, a lot like some giallo films, but other, you know, kind of phantasmagorical horror films, they operate almost on kind of this dream logic, like... Yes, there are characters that have relationships that are set up and you could explain the plot A to B to C, kind of. But things are, there's no explanation as to why this is happening. Like, at one point in Demons, the pimp character says that it's, or uh, thinks that it's the movie that's causing all this. It's a haunted movie reel. But then uh, the blind man says, like, no, it's the theater itself is the thing that's causing this. And they don't really delve into that. It's more just like an, a tossed off explanation as to why these terrible things are happening to this group of people. There's no morality to it. While I do think it takes some influence from Night of the Living Dead, there's none of those like social dynamics happening at play. Like it's fascinating in that there none of that exists. It's fascinating in that things happen that are terrifying and horrifying and you feel claustrophobic and you get a lot of like whiplash as you're like going through the events of both films like when they'll cut back to a different group of characters or someone you probably didn't see get bitten turned into a demon becoming a demon it happens very quickly there's also the transformations in makeup work in this are so gruesome the way characters become demons it's not this cheap like zombie makeup it's like their teeth grow in and like their old teeth fall out and they get these like crazy varicose, not varicose, but like veins across their face and these like white pupils. Then there's some great iconic shots in both movies of like hordes of demons like cresting like a hill area and you can just like see their eyes and like their silhouettes. And I'm so happy I rewatched these because Demons 1 is to me one of the now one of the all time great like splatter films. You go into it not knowing exactly how things are going to play out and how off the wall insane it'll be but it is a movie that wastes almost no time this masked figure comes with his chrome half face and offering tickets and you see him in little flashes earlier in the film and the film just kind of goes off from there like once they're in the theater and scratches start appearing on people i can't even describe how thrilling it is to watch it also has this great like mid 80s like kind of heavy metal soundtrack uh, featuring Billy Idol and except Motley Crue, The Adventures, Saxon, Rick Springfield, all mixed up with Claudio Simonetti's score, which uh, you're probably hearing right now. The theme to Demons goes so hard. I have run to this track so much this week and just have had it on the house. It's the menu music for the movie. And I think I had it on for about uh, an hour before I was like, uh, all right, I'm getting kind of tired of this. But yeah, the lineage of having Dario Argento here partnering with, with Mario Bava's son, they originally kind of envisioned this as like an anthology and a trilogy, but they only made these two films. And even by their or at least Dario's uh, admittance and the special features, which I'll get to later. Demons is heads and shoulders better than Demons 2, but Demons 2 has its, like I said, it's way more ambitious 
in its uh, wants, but not so much its execution. The While the makeup effects in the music by Simon Boswell are great in their own right, and you get a little more of that humanity uh, because there is this running through line of a couple where they're pregnant and you are like, okay, well, I would like them to survive, so they kind of become the main characters of the movie. Although these movies are not shy about killing kids, uh, that's all I'll say about that. You you just want it to be better, and it's a little slower paced, and there's a little more commentary to it. Like I said, they're in this like yuppie fortress, and they can't get out, and it's you know almost like kind of that uh, they were all equal in death type deal like it doesn't matter how rich you are if something terrible happens you will be trapped and as dead or turned into a demon as anybody else but the first movie is just so good it just it whips it whips so hard i don't really know how to describe it. like it's one of the like gnarliest movies i've seen in a long time even though i had seen it before just so much pus so much blood so much bile so much green slime i don't know just that 80s uh hue of uh, gloopy colors that we used to get is just unmatched. But I don't know if I should say any more about these films because they're very experiential films. Like you kind of just kind of need to see them. Like I said, there's not a ton of subtext to them. And I, it's more just, there's a lot of very talented people behind the making of these films. You can definitely see Dario Argento's influence in the way the colors play out. And it reminds me a lot of things like he did like Deep Red and more of his like later titles. I have not as well versed in Dario Argento's oeuvre as I would like to, or Giallo for that matter, or even Splatter for that matter. These are all big genres that have like a lot of lineage to them. But I would say if you want your interest peaked in any of these things, especially like Italian horror cinema, you should definitely check out Demons and Demons 2. And this Synapse release is great it is i don't know how much of it is from the old synapse release which went out of print and came back into print via arrow video and there are some arrow video special features on here it seems like they're very much within collaboration with each other but there are so many archival behind the scenes footage special features there are multiple commentaries for each film including one commentary that does include bava there are special features that go into those gnarly makeup effects with a special effects artist Sergio Stivaletti. Both films have special features about music and interviews with cast and crew. There is a great video essay that I enjoyed watching by Alexandra Heller Nicholas. She kind of talks about the melding of technology and the use of space within both films. Uh, and it, it, it's quite eye-opening. It adds a lot of depth to maybe what they were going for with these movies. Also, if you are lucky enough to get this special edition, it does come with some nice little trinkets. It comes with a poster, uh, which if I have put this episode out in time, I am actually raffling away at a uh, horror film screening that I'm doing with Cicada Cinema. So sadly, it will not be in my collection, but I wanted somebody else to have it. But there's some notes about the transfers of each films as well. If you are lucky enough to get the 4K release of it, it is a steelbook. I did not get the 4K release because I do not have a 4K Blu-ray player yet, but the standard HD Blu-ray looks and sounds incredible. Like I said, I just listened to the menu music on loop and it. The levels are balanced. And when you put the movie on, the picture is clear and crisp. So 
I highly recommend Demons 1 and 2. And while I and while me and Dario Argento have both kind of said like, uh, ah, it's not as good as the first one, I think Demons 2, like it's worth picking it up as a packet of films because the differences are fascinating between the two of them. So once again, you can find Demons and Demons 2 as a collection from Synapse Films. Admittedly, the story you're about to read is bizarre, incredible. Those of you who wish to avoid being unsettled, who wish to avoid thinking, will label it insane. And though you, the reader, would find these facts almost impossible to substantiate, that does not change their nature. Facts they are. I know. I saw them happen. and Visual Arts Program Manager of the Lotus Education and Arts Foundation. I am also a teacher, instructor, as well as community radio DJ. Hey, thanks for coming back, Amanda. Thanks for having me back, Dave. <laughs> uh, for those listening, uh, Amanda was on for our discussion of art in M.C. Escher and Voinerovich, which I still know how to pronounce to this very day after many, many <laughs> tries and failures to get it right. But thank you so much. I decided to have you on because as I have gotten to know you, you have revealed yourself to be a big X-Files fan. Absolutely. And I thought when Kino announced this, I found out the great little fun fact that Chris uh, Carter. Carter, yes. I always want to say Chris Marker, but that's the documentarian. <laughs> um, Chris Carter has been very open about how much he took inspiration from Kolchak the Night Stalker in making the X Files. So I thought it would be fun to have someone on who comes more from that. Because my experience with Monster of the Week shows are purely just I like Buffy, and I have seen episodes of other things like supernatural and fringe but like that's not the world i inhabit those aren't shows i generally watch a ton sci-fi is definitely the area i like to be more focused in i also love sci-fi it's just for television i just it's one of those things that i don't tend to gravitate towards yeah. very much i mean tv can be massive where movies can be a little bit more like oh all right did that now that's the story like <laughs> TV, you feel like you get sucked into like this longer plot line and well, X-Files definitely did that for me, like with the main thread through it. It was just. Well, um, there's also the difference between older TV, like pre-Golden Age TV, which is more, it was more episodic. You didn't have to be familiar with every single episode. Like I'm sure whenever I watched Buffy, I, I watched it completely out of order. I didn't watch it as like a TV show until it probably came to Netflix when I was in college. Yeah, it's, it's different from like a Game of Thrones episode where if you just get thrown in, you're like, who are all yeah. these people and why would I care? Yes. Like X I feel like X Files has those those episodes though too. You could just jump in and yeah. not be not finding yourself being like enjoying it or anything like that. You'd watch it and enjoy it. Yeah, there's some episodes for sure that it's gonna Yeah, there's always mythology episodes and like episodic TV and there's always reoccurring characters and things like that. It's just this show in particular, I had always heard about and it had most recently come up in like within my purview before this announcement uh there's a podcast i listen to called the adventure zone 
it's a D&D podcast or a role-playing, adventure role-playing podcast. And one of the people on there, Clint McElroy, the father of the McElroy brothers, uh, who's a accomplished like actor, but also a, a nerd himself. In one of the seasons of the show, he had kind of modeled his character off of, and he had specifically said kind of like a combination of Brian Blessed, the actor Brian Blessed, and Kolchak the Night Stalker. And I had not watched the show. I heard the name before, like in passing before that but like never really like never even went to wikipedia and saw what it was but his character within that podcast was very like he tried to bluff his way in and out of things he was like very fast talking and kind of ornery and like <laughs> and so i got the sense that this was a character who at least like within circles older like circles amongst people i would probably say between the ages of like gen x age of like late 30s to 50s and then like maybe like younger baby boomers were more familiar with but i never caught this on reruns i don't know if you had like when you were growing up like this was not something that was on tv land like the same way like columbo or murder she wrote or anything yeah any other like detective shows even though this isn't really even a detective show honestly yeah i never had seen episodes or the movies before it so so we're coming into this together i'm coming from the side of I know Monster of the Week shows and the way those formulas work, but you obviously have like the knowledge of the X-Files and all that that has spun off of it. But the context of the show is very fascinating. As Amanda just kind of mentioned, there are two TV movies that this is born out of. But even a precursor to that, these are actually the TV movies were based on unpublished novels uh, by the creator, Jeff Rice, who is a novelist in his own right. He never really did much after this. Like his like most of his credits are being the creator of Kolchek the Night Stalker. And Richard Matheson, who most famously was a writer for Twilight Zone and wrote I Am Legend and then also adapted I Am Legend into the Vincent Price movie. He wrote the Twilight Zone episode, uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. There's something on the wing of the plane episode. William Uh, Shatner. Yes, William Shatner. Yeah, and then also it's been adapted. Yeah, like at least a couple of times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, He is like one of like not founding fathers of sci-fi, but just one of those like Mount Rushmore. Some someone would have him there as far as like incredibly influential sci-fi writers. And so he essentially took that unpublished novel, adapted it for the TV movie, and it was a giant hit. Apparently. This is back when there were only three networks, <laughs> like and there was so, no cable. Uh, so I'm what not, was on TV? What was on TV? I think it was just, yeah. yeah, it was ABC, NBC, and CBS. And it had a 54% share, which means that literally 54% of televisions that were on at the time were watching Kolchek, the Night Stalker, the television movie. Yes. Um, which is insane. And then, because it was such a massive hit, they made the sequel, which was also a big hit. Yeah, like a year later. Yes, a year later. The Night Strangler. The Night Strangler. uh, And The Night Stalker is about, you get introduced to Carl Kolchek, played by Darren McGavin, who you probably, if you're listening to this, you either know him as the dad of Billy Madison, in the Billy Billy Madison, he's the dad in A Christmas Story. Amanda knows him, and I have not started watching X-Files yet, but apparently he does have a couple of appearances on the X-Files, kind of playing a Kolchak-esque character. Well, no, that's the thing. For the X-Files, he didn't want to, like, come back as Kolchak or something like that, but it is definitely a nod to how much Chris Carter got inspiration from Kolchak to bake the X-Files. So, or he ends up showing up as what is the 
founder of the X-Files at the oh, FBI. So interesting. He, That's um, cute. He's created it and Fox Mulder is there, played by David Duchovny, to figure out someone he's investigating and Kolchek or Darren McGavin's character is, you know, somebody that interviewed him before. So he's there to like figure out some information and then he ends up finding out something about his dad and some other things that play like a huge tone in the rest of the, the series about basically Mulder's life and who his dad was. But he is like the founder of the X-Files um, at the FBI office. So I mean, that's name, very name, cool. His name is Arthur Dales in the episode. <laughs> Can and, you also confirm for me in like my very brief research that I was doing for the show that there is an episode in which uh, Mulder, David Duchovny, dons his iconic outfit for an episode or something like that so in the revival of the series which like it ended in season nine came back season 10 years like so the series ended like 2001 2002 um x-files did and then came back in 2016 so season 10 starts off with you know a lot of wild things because the x-files are back on tv so many years later but season 10 episode three has reese darby playing a character that is the creature that they're like looking for in the episode. And he shows up in a graveyard dressed exactly like Holchek. Ah, interesting. And then subsequently fights Mulder in this <laughs> graveyard because um, he doesn't want to live anymore, but whatever. Um, but it's Reese Darby and his character's name is Guy Man, which is just like so funny. But he's in the hat. He's in the seersucker like white suit, you know. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, so that's very cute. And oh, yeah, A nice little homage. Uh, and they do have a character on there named Matheson because of... Richard Matheson. Or, of Richard Matheson. Of course. So, um, um, like a character through the series. It's a, it's a judge that helps yes. out Mulder a lot. Well, it's also interesting that you mentioned that The X-Files was a show that ran for like 10 seasons, and got two revival seasons, and I think at least two spinoff shows, which I'm like The Lone Gunman, which I've weirdly seen more episodes of than The X-Files, <laughs> uh, and Millennium, uh, and then apparently. Two, and then two movies as well. Yeah, and yeah. then, yeah, it's a whole thing. Whereas Coltrane Night Stalker is a show that only had two TV movies. One was a hit, both were hits, and then the television show was canceled, partially because trouble finding an audience, trouble with ratings, because they put in what's known as like the like death spot back in the day for television. Like television program used to be a art form. And if your television show was put on on a Friday night at like eight o'clock, you were essentially dooming it like to be canceled in the first place. Um, so it's partially canceled because of that, because ratings just kept dipping every week. And it also kind of canceled because Darren McGavin kind of canceled it himself because he was not having a good time making the show. At a certain point, apparently, when he came back for the second movie, the director of it, uh, Dan Curtis, who had been a producer on the first movie, they got along very well. In the second movie, they did not get along at all. And so, and, and essentially, a lot of things happened, and they convinced Darren McGavin to come back, do the show, and they, pro they promised him a producer's credit on the show which would give him some form of creative control on the show. But he was running the things on the set where, and then the producers, the other producers of the show and the studio heads were running things behind the scenes. So there was always like clashing happening. And essentially it was like, no one's watching the show in his estimation at the time. He, he didn't think it was a very good show. Like he was always more interested in the newsroom stuff, which we'll get to like the weird melding of like tones and genres that is this show. And so he essentially begged the studio executives to cancel the show, which is very sad, but it's one of those things that it has lived all like it create, it didn't create the monster of the week genre, obviously literate. That's like a literary thing where, you know, like magazines and things would have like, 
and the next adventure of this person, this monster shows up, you know, very yeah. cyclical, but it birthed the CW owes a big thank you to Colcheck the Night Stalker because yeah. like so much of their programming is uh, it's monster of the week programming. But what I like about how it fits into the X-Files, and I, I guess we haven't really done like a rundown of what exactly Kolchek the Night Stalker is. Yes. So Carl Kolchek, played by Darren McGavin, is a reporter. In the first movie, it is in Las Vegas because Jeff Rice was a reporter for the Las Vegas Sun at the time. In the first movie, he battles a vampire and then he is run out of town by the Las Vegas government because they're like, look. And I'm, I'm sorry, I guess spoilers for the two Kolchek movies, but like, they're like, listen, you're right, but we can't let people know that like vampires are real and that's what's been causing this murder. So they essentially run him out of town. I, ha- I have to say, watching the first two movies and then the series, uh, we haven't watched all of the series yet, just a few episodes left for me, like four episodes, I think. Sure. But the first movie is... I feel like way more true to like what Chris Carter was trying to go for on the X-Files. Like, yes, there's like some plot, like there's definitely plot points and like things throughout the TV series, but definitely the first movie, the way Kolchak is a believer and a non-believer at the same time about what he's trying to find is so much Mulder and Scully, (laughs) like through that whole show that, you know, he, he plays like both sides of it, I yeah. guess. I and mean, I, well, it's it's also the first like it's not like an in media res movie. It is truly like the first supernatural adventure that that Carl Kolchek is going through at this point. Yes, but uh, I think Chris Carter like very yeah. much pulls like most of the the influence from from his character in the first one. Yeah, like, but he is a reporter for the in Las Vegas. He's run out of town, and so he ends up in Seattle and Kolchek, the Night Strangler, in a. Essentially, a very similar thing happens. It's not a vampire this time. It is a, a creature that has no name, but a creature that also sucks blood to keep its youth. And he's run out of town along with his friend and editor, which is one of the more amusing plot points of these movies and then television show. Tony Vincenzo is also like run out of town with him. They're almost like a package deal, it seems like. They're friends, but you know, it's clear that like Vincenzo is uh, kind of annoyed by Kolchek. <laughs> but they end up in Chicago for the remainder of the series. The entire series takes place in Chicago, which I know you were so happy when it yes. was like it was Chicago. <laughs> I will say when I was doing research in the show, it was kind of amusing to find out they were like they shot all the Chicago stuff in like a week yeah. for the show. And then everything else is a set or yeah. shot and like shot in L.A. But it's still nice that it, like it's there. But like anytime he's like drop, like there are just so much recycled footage the, in the, the show. The building with the ivy on it. I'm like, he was here last time, wasn't There's he? There's so many <laughs> like, shots of Lakeshore Drive yeah. in the show. Yes, and then it is this weird melding of like a newsroom movie, kind of like the front page, and it's also obviously this supernatural like horror like every episode is like a like its own little miniature horror movie but then it also is like a detective story like he does the police job better than the police are doing within the show and the police are not to be trusted within the show because they're always they're trying to essentially they're trying to close cases they're not trying to actually do the right thing which is very much fits with the time like within the 70s you have even though the movies came out pre-watergate and actually like made a joke that i mean the show is kind of funny in that kolchek all we're seeing is the monster of the week. And you have to kind of fill in the blanks in your brain of like, a, well, he has to write other reports. Otherwise, how would he keep his job? And also those reports must be really good. And I made the joke. I'm like, 
man, Kolchak must have, in this universe, Kolchak's the one who broke Watergate. Like, it's not <laughs> yeah. Woodward and Bernstein. <laughs> like, that's the only way he could justify, like, he's doing very illegal things. Like, he's very annoying. He's constantly, like, breaks into, in Breaks it, like, everywhere. constant B&Es, like, yeah. shows up on police things, which is obviously very illegal. Yeah. Like, like, very much overstepping his, like, press bounce. And obviously, it's a TV show, and they're playing fast and loose. Like, obviously, he would be in jail or not have a job in real life. Yeah. But... It is very amusing that he gets to stick around because it feels like, I feel like it's got to be every other week he goes to Vincenzo just being like, look, I'm sorry, I got enough. It's like this time it's a werewolf. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's that very much that 70s thing, uh, even though it's pre-Watergate and we're starting to distrust authority and people in authoritative states like that does really tie in well with the x-files because when the x-files is coming out in the 90s you have like the rise of conspiracy theories and like a very like well chris carter's like main things in his head when he was creating x-files was all of the very recent alien abductions happening in the 90s watergate was definitely one Um, well as a gen xer like watergate was happening when he was a child the same way like i'm sure our generation is obsessed with 9-11 at this point but the third one was kolchek so like it's those three things coming together for chris carter from kolchek and everything it's just i i loved watching the series because it was fun to think which x-files episode (laughs) (laughs) do they do they do kind of based off of this Kolchek one? Because there's almost similarities through all of the episodes that I've seen so far. Um, but a lot, the, like the chopper, I was like, I am. Uh, a chopper, you should mention, the first writing credit for Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, like predating even their first film, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Crazy to think about, very much inspired by uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, Except yeah. this time he's got a sword and he rides a motorcycle. Apparently, I just want to point out that episode in particular, apparently they originally wanted him to have a chain, which I can only assume is supposed to be a reference to Ghost Rider in some way. But the network wasn't concerned so much with blood as much as they were the depiction of violence. And so for some reason, they thought a beheading with chain was too violent to be depicted, but a beheading with a sword was less violent. I just find that like to be like really amusing that that was like the middle ground they met on. Like it can't be a chain. It's got to be a sword. Also, just I'm sorry, I'm like tangent on tangent, but uh, it it would behoove me to mention that. Yes, one of the more famous people to work on this show is Sopranos creator and writer and director David Chase, who when we were watching the show, like his name would pop up like pretty much every other episode. He served as story editor on eight out of 20 episodes, but it's like, pretty much been confirmed by most of the cast and crew that like he worked on all 20 episodes of the show and contributed to like a lot of like the super offbeat humor and like finding that out and also being a big fan of the Sopranos it comes through very like David Chase has a very specific sense of humor anything to do with like kind of craggly irascible men he knows like he has like a a way with them which is like very obvious when you watch the Sopranos like it's it's not like tough guy humor per se it's Tough guys saying things that you quite wouldn't expect them to say or get upset about. Or it's just funny watching them get upset. Watching Vincenzo just blow up and trying to, like, keep his blood pressure down or his, like, ulcer under control is, like, very much like Tony getting frustrated every five seconds at somebody (laughs) on the surrounds. But anyway, it's one of those, like... Not just Tony. It's, like, every chief of police. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's so mad at Kolchak (laughs) all the time. (laughs) So much blood pressure. (laughs) 
<laughs> but yes, that is like one of the more like, it's just funny how many people kind of came through the show that only lasted for 20 episodes. Like the guest stars every episode alone yeah. are, it's like, I'm sure, I, like I remember just kind of like skimming the Wikipedia article, plus also the people that I write, like Tom Skerritt shows up for an episode. Eric Estrada shows up for an episode. What's Feeney's name? Oh, uh, William Daniels. William Daniels. That's yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's incredible in the episode that he shows up. And, like, you watched MASH and you there's a cast member from MASH on yes. the show. Like, it, it is a, a smorgasbord for character actors to show up and just kind of, like, do one episode. Kind of like Columbo or Murder, She Wrote. Like, any sort of television show from that era. The reason I wanted to talk about it so badly is because while it does have this incredible influence for television, and we'll obviously go back to the X-Files parallels. Um, yeah. It it's so well shot and so well scored. Like, and this this could just be it's for the time people just knew how to like block things correctly. But there's this like a lot of like great artistic choices. Like they shoot a lot at night, which is very expensive and hard to do. Yeah. And like, well, they, you called it Night Stalker, so they had to. Like, they call it the Night <laughs> yeah, Stalker. Yeah. Oh, also, I didn't even get to mention in like my kind of preamble to like talking about how the show got created. They originally wanted to do a third movie called Kolchek the Night Killers which was going to be about a bunch of android replicas, like androids mimicking people. (laughs) Then they decided to actually go forward with the TV show. But sadly, the only kind of remnant of that that exists is the one episode about the the robot. But that's not really a a replica uh, as much as it is just a robot. So, David, before we started recording, I watched a little bit of a pilot episode of Night Stalker from 2005. Yes, because it was Bad. remade. Uh, oh, yes. It, it yeah, was what? <laughs> it was kind of remade, I guess. I it mean, was, I, well, it was. So in 2002, X Files ended. And then 2005, executive producer Frank Spotnitz, director Rob Bowman, and pre Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan. Which makes sense because he had the pedigree of being on the X, like Absolutely. one of the big writers on the X Files. Absolutely. Did a cold check revival that was just Night Stalker. And it petered out after 10 episodes. And Man, I don't know how far I made it into that first episode, but it wasn't very far. <laughs> so I was just like, it's just so overproduced. It was just like, I might try to watch some of it, but I don't know. I can see why it would only last so yeah. long. Yeah, I mean, and it just kind of speaks to the affinity, the affinity people have for the show. These are always like kind of my favorite pieces of media. You know, everyone has them, like the cult thing that there's not a lot of it, but its influence is exponential like i remember the era when cowboy bebop was not a popular show it was a it was just a thing that if you knew about it you were like in the know about it and then you would slowly start to see like everything that had that it had been cribbed from so many people it was it's kind of the like wink it's like a if you get it you get it if you know you know and it's it's just crazy how much dna in like our current like television landscape maybe not so much our current television landscape because episodic tv is largely dead but I don't know, like the idea of like a monster of the week with some sort of like very memorable lead character like Kolchek. Darren McGavin deserves, I don't know, he, he obviously never won an Emmy for this, but like he deserves a posthumous like Lifetime Achievement Award for this performance. It's like this weird balancing act of like, a, he's so annoying like you should not like (laughs) carl kolchek at all you love him though so much you do love well you love him because he's seeking out the truth it's the uh there's a movie called lenny with dustin hoffman about the the comedian lenny bruce and like 
my very one sentence review. Someone's like, give me one sentence review of Lenny. I was like, it's about someone who's uh, right, but not likable enough for anyone to listen to him, <laughs> which is like, I guess one of my favorite types of characters where it's like, you are a person who is like, you have seen the light, you know exactly what's going on, but you don't have the social skills or likability for anyone to ever take anything you say seriously. Yeah. Like, even if, like, even if you had mountains of evidence, which, as I made the joke last night, none of Kolchak's evidence would ever be admissible in court because he's constantly no. breaking laws. Breaking laws, breaking his camera. Yes, breaking right. things, you know, losing the evidence, almost dying. <laughs> like, <laughs> almost dying a lot. Yeah. Uh, murdering monsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he murders a lot in this show. Yeah. I would like to ask you for the episodes that you have seen. Did you have one that stood out to you in particular that you enjoyed quite a bit? Um, probably the zombie one. Ah, yes. I think that's the one that has uh, a Scatman Carruthers in it. Yes. It's the voodoo. It's the voodoo episode, which I enjoy. Like, if you're gonna have a monster of the week, you gotta have a voodoo episode. I would say my favorite episode is one that we actually watched recently together, which. Uh, I think on one of the special features where they interview Dana Gould, like he mentions, and it actually gets brought up a lot, is Horror in the Heights, which is the one about the Hindu demon called the uh, Rakshasha, or Rakshasa, yeah. where it's about Hindu demon terrorizing a Jewish neighborhood where it appears to you in the form of someone that you trust innately. Uh, and it's actually like genuinely like kind of a terrifying like concept of an episode. I also really enjoyed the one not long after that called Primal Scream, which is like, the most so like as far as what you've seen so far, like the most clearly the the police force is trying to cover up so, like is trying to cover up something where that's the one about without giving too much away from the episode about a, essentially a caveman attacking, yeah. <laughs> terrorizing Chicago. Yeah. Uh, without saying too much about it. Um, the 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 zombie episode. Which like the interview with Dana Gould, like yes, it is actually so scary. <laughs> I agree with that so much. I was like, oh yeah, that episode is really scary. And Antonio Fargus is in it as well. He's from he's Huggy Bear and Starsky and Hutch, and um, he's in Foxy Brown. I love seeing the guest stars, and then also it being like a good episode at the same time. Like that yeah. is been really nice lining well, up. I would say that the strength of the show is that because there are only twenty episodes. They're all pretty great. There hasn't been an episode where I'm like, uh, oh, okay, well, this one you kind of goes off during. But like, I don't know. Like, I think it so much of the show has to do with how much Darren McGavin like actually like puts into the role. Like, despite like him problems with the show, it never seems like he phoned in any performance. And it seems like while playing the character, he enjoys playing the character. It's maybe just a thing he doesn't like returning back to. But before we wrap up, I just there's something I like wanted to mention about the show that like a lot of Monster of the Week shows either ignore or don't like. The thing I like about the X-Files is that it very much has like a sound to it. John Tesh's score uh, having to do, or theme song having to do a lot a lot with that. Kolchek, the Night Stalker, both the movies and this television series have this like incredible pedigree of composers. Like we've been like humming the theme song to ourselves so much. Well, I did not know this. I mean, even despite looking at the composer credits every episode, is by a jazz musician that I'm like pretty familiar with, named uh, Gil Mel, who is like a post-bop baritone saxophonist. And most of the composers that work on this show have some sort of background in jazz. Uh, Jerry Fielding is another jazz musician who worked as a composer on the show. The TV movies are by Bob Corbett, whose pedigree isn't really so much in jazz. While that theme kind of has like a lot of jazz influence to it worked on dark shadows 
So you have this like, and Dan Curtis, the person that uh, Darren McGavin had a falling out with, also worked on Dark Shadows. So you do have this like weird melding of like spooky, like kind of gothic score music, like combined with like this like very much like 70s, very muscly jazz soundtrack. And it sounds like how a supernatural show set in modern day Chicago should actually sound like. I don't I don't really know how else to how to say it. I don't know. Did you enjoy the music in the show as you listen to it? Yes, of course. It's um not annoying. You know, like <laughs> like a lot of a lot of shows come up and you're just like, please um skip like the intro part or do something. It's all very lovely. I also like the implication that Kolchek is the one who came up with the theme song because the op- the opening is him whistling the theme song and then like uh, throwing his hat on a hook and missing the hook. <laughs> uh, it's got uh, Jack Cole did the opening credits for it, who I think also did the opening credits for Columbo. They're great. It's it's uh, it's a lot of very seventies like freeze frames or just like shadows behind Darren McGavin's face while he's making like weird facial tics. I it's I I never skip it. I would never skip the intro to the to the show cuz it's so good. But yes, honestly, it's one of those things that if we if we had a couple of hours, we could get into like the nitty-gritty of the show. But I think this is one of those shows that not only is like ripe for rediscovery and Kino Lorber, thank God, like this was like kind of hard to find for a super long time and they've done an incredible job with like the repackaging of it and the restoration, like the colors in the show pop so well, like those like seventies, like greens and yellows and reds, like pop so well, but like you get a commentary for every single episode of the show with like film historians. It's loaded. There is an interview with David Chase, which he talks about how it was kind of his first gig and kind of how he's appreciative of it, but also kind of resentful of it. I do love the love hate relationship that like the famous creators of the show have with it. And you get the original TV spots, which are like amusing because it's like little trailers for the episodes, things that we don't really have anymore. I remember watching TV spots for certain television shows growing up, as well as the interview with Dana Gould. And it's as good as a release that I feel like something like this will ever get. I'm sure maybe Kino might have plans to do some sort of like combined packaging of everything together. But as of right now, like, yeah, please go pick up the two Kolchak, the Night Stalker movies, the Night, the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler. And as well as this, this is worth every penny. This is a show that I think I'm just going to have on rotation for the rest of my life. That I'm just going to be like, a, I just want to watch an episode of something. How do you, how do you feel about it? What is your review of Kolchak? Yeah, it's definitely has earned its following because it is wonderful. The two TV movies are really great. And then the show just is buck wild, honestly. Like, if you just want to have a good time and uh, solve some spooky mysteries as well, that's exactly what you should be watching. (laughs) It is very much of the season. So thank you so much, Amanda, for being here. Thank you for having me, David. And I Cinema. From Aero Video, we have a long-awaited release over here in the West from Dai Studios, the same studio that brought you Gamera in the Daimajin trilogy. We have the Yokai Monster Collection. So, Yokai. I am not an expert on the field of Yokai or folk horror or folklore or any of the customs that 
from different countries, especially Japan, that have brought us uh, so many things over here in the West that we don't quite know what the origins of are. But my understanding of yokai and the education I got from this very box set are that yokai are Japanese spirits. They are not to be confused with Japanese apparitions or ghosts, although things can be, the terms are used kind of interchangeably. But yokai are this pantheon of spirits that range from things created out of commerce in which we know the origins of and that they, you know, could have been an advertisement or a mascot for something and then, you know, got folded into the larger realm of yokai or things that we don't know where the origins of them came from. They can range from malicious spirits to incredibly friendly spirits, including an umbrella that was left abandoned for a hundred years and then uh, is possessed by a spirit but is in no way malicious. It runs the gamut. And this Yokai Monsters collection box set from Arrow presents us with a trilogy of films from the 60s and a film from 2005 from auteur Takashi Miike called The Great Yokai War. What this box set is are these three films from the 1960s, the titles of which are 100 Monsters, Spook Warfare, and along with ghosts. These were all made <laughs> within the span of one year, essentially, and they are kind of not connected, but sort of connected stories just about three misadventures that involve yokai. 100 Monsters are, is about the Yakuza and slumlords wanting to tear down shrines all over Edo period Japan uh, in order to erect brothels. In my opinion, you could just have both. I don't know why there has to be any sort of uh, destroying of a shrine but because of this they anger the yokai spirits that inhabit these shrines and the yokai do everything in their power to thwart them from accomplishing this the second film which is actually a adaptation of a shigeru mizuki who's considered the god of yokai meaning that he is the one who brought yokai back into popularity because they go through these ebbs and flows in Japan as far as popularity is concerned or when they're most wanted or needed. He is responsible for that because of his manga uh, Kitaro, which are this like black, dark, humorous manga about this yokai boy who interacts with yokai monsters regularly. So Spook Warfare is kind of an adaptation of one of those manga, I think called The Great Yokai War, which is about yokai battling, at least in this adaptation, a Babylonian vampire. And it's kind of like a ragtag group of different yo, like the more uh, iconic yokai, I guess you would say. There's a kappa, which is a turtle spirit, uh, which I've just recently learned that's where the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles took inspiration from, our Kappas. There's the aforementioned Umbrella <laughs> spirit. There's the spirit of the woman with the like incredibly long neck uh, I've seen quite a few times along with so many other. And they band together along with a uh, samurai to bring down this vampire. I think in the original adaptation, it had to do with some sort of industrialization, which is kind of reflected in yet another remake, which I'll get to later, which is Takashi Miike's Great Yokai War. And the third film of this trilogy is Along With Ghosts, which is about uh, a young girl who needs to be defended by the yokai from a deadly Yakuza, once again, seeking a deed that would allow them to uh, take over some territory in which they are not welcome at. 
I'm so glad I got to finally watch these movies. I had heard about them for so long because we may not know over here in the West, one of the biggest yokai transports that has come out of Japan has been Pokemon. I, like a lot of people my age and younger and older, Pokemon was this huge revelatory event over here in the U.S. And it has stuck with me my entire life. I've played almost every Pokemon release as it's come out. I still have an affection for it. And they they draw heavy inspiration from yokai because yokai can be almost anything. There, uh, as I is pointed out in the Great Yokai War, there's a yokai that is just a wall. But yokai, like I said, can be part of commerce and that one of them is a little boy who sells tofu um, uh, that was probably used as a mascot at some point uh, back in the olden times in Japan. Uh, <laughs> and so Pokemon inhabit that. There's a po- like people like to make their like jokes about, oh, there can be a Pokemon for anything and whatever. But that is the spirit in which yokai are born out of. So as I've gotten more into film, I had heard about these like yokai movies. I kind of heard about Takashi Miike's The Great Yokai War, and I'd kind of heard of Kitaro, but I never really delved into them. It wouldn't be until I got a little bit older and started skimming Wikipedia more often and reading essays about things that I was like, I need to watch this yokai trilogy. Like, it seems incredible. And lo and behold, they are pretty incredible. As someone who does enjoy people in rubber suits and puppets and people with puppet heads being, you know, controlled remotely, these are a joy to watch. They're not exactly scary, and actually I wouldn't even characterize uh, yokai things as very scary. Obviously, a lot of it's very frightening. Like I said, the aforementioned woman with the long neck who terrorizes you uh, is very scary, but the spirit in which these stories are told in is that they're usually like darkly comedic and they're more spooky would be the more correct word for them and if anything yokai don't tend to bother people who don't bother them or just at least play by their rules there's in one of the films the yokai simply attack because they don't complete the ritual of paying this like lake spirit yokai money uh to let them pass it's they don't seem like, they're, they're not like other Japanese apparition things that have become popular in the West, like something like uh, The Ring or Juon, where you are disturbing them, but also they are kind of malicious because they are seeking revenge. Like, that is not the yokai's game. And so these three films are very much like shot on sets with like matte paintings and like I said, people in costumes and this, just this sense of a folk story being told to you, like this is the tale of this happening. As a matter of fact, one of the framing devices in 100 Monsters is exactly that. And I'm happy that this is coming out now because the conversation around folk horror has sparked up so much because of uh, uh, Woodland's Dark Days Bewitched, the documentary on folk horror, and Candyman coming back into conversation because of the Costas film various boutique labels releasing folk horror films and yokai are essential folk horror figures if you are into the idea of folk horror and folk horror originating from countries outside of your own this is a essential box set to own in my opinion the box set does go out of its way to give you context for so much of what yokai 
are and aren't much like how i mentioned about giallo having like these very specific characteristics but then also people not being able to really agree what the characteristics are that is what yokai are like so this box set comes with all four films uh, and i'll get to the great yokai war and why that's such a buck wild like addition to this box set because the three films would have sufficed i'm so glad they included the great yokai war but included in this box set is a documentary called hiding in plain sight which i watched before I watched any of the films because I'd already been informed that it was kind of an explanation as to what yokai are and aren't by a, a round table of experts and enthusiasts. And that is, in my opinion, something that you should watch at some point while viewing these films because it really does help you understand like why these are such interesting figures within popular culture, but also Japanese culture and how that has translated to the West. In addition to all of that context, you get this great little fold-out uh, pamphlet that has a parade of yokai on it, and they and it has a description of what each yokai are and kind of its origins. It's very helpful, as well as a collection of essays from writers Stuart Galbraith IV, uh, he writes a diverse trilogy in terror about the entire trilogy of Dae's yokai films. There's also, along with Ghosts Visiting the Yokai Monsters by Raphael Coronelli, as well as an essay called Tales of Shigeru Mizuki, who, as I said, is the god of yokai, uh, making it popular once again in the 20th century. That is an essay about him by Joyan Yates. And then there are press notes from the Great Yokai War uh, by Keith Eichen, uh, and then some notes about the transfer. <laughs> so the Great Yokai War, like I said, is the second remake or the second adaptation of Shigeru Mizuki's Great Yokai War that is completely blown out. It does kind of bring back that tradition versus technology theme that's in the original manga, but it's about a little boy who's kind of pick to be this like destined hero to like mediate slash in this great yokai war that is started by this man who is turning yokai into robots and in true takashi Miike fashion it is a kitchen sink movie it is uh made with the fervor of a person who makes about two to three films a year uh but doesn't phone any of them in it seems like uh <laughs> there are some truly inspired moments in this film uh including the i can only because this is a children's film and it opens with a very scarring <laughs> opening scene of a monster car thing like chopping up a bunch of like a collection of like yokai mice looking things and you really do get that like translation into the 21st century version of spook warfare of the yokai all banding together like the kappa is still the one like heading the team and convincing people to stay there are great little gags everywhere and he does like stay true to the idea that these are people in rubber costumes or puppets and yes there are completely cg creations in one in this one and there are like cg versions of yokai monsters in the older films uh, i would say the ingenuity in the original uh, Dae trilogy of the woman with the long neck, that is a lot of trickery and shadows and practical know-how to pull that effect off. And it is unsettling because there is a tactility to it. Whereas in this film, it's like, yeah, you can do CGI. You can just kind of do whatever you want. And so, yes, her head floats all the way around everywhere in the film. But it's more, it's still amusing in my opinion. And I think there have been some complaints about how this is 
tacked on to this release or they should have waited until the Takashi Miike's uh, follow-up film, which just premiered at Japan Cuts this year. This a follow-up film to The Great Yokai War, which does feature the giant kaiju Daimajin. But honestly, I don't know how necessary it is. I'm sure that Arrow or somebody else will put that out as a separate release. But this to me feels like an enclosed package and education into what yokai are. It is handsomely illustrated. It looks great on your shelf. There's also a ton of special features for The Great Yokai War that has a lot of cast and crew interviews and retrospectives. It is a proper release of the film. So I don't really have much else to say about that except for I had such a fun time working my way through this box set. And these are such cozy movies, oddly, in that because they are so fun loving and they are kind of spooky. And yeah, the human elements of each plot aren't the draw here. I would even say along with Ghost is the weakest of the three films because it focuses so much on the human relationships and not so much on the yokai monsters. And Spook Warfare is mostly about the yokai monsters and this Babylonian vampire. So it's my favorite of the three films. But that is, I would say, the only weak point of this film. The Great Yokai War kind of tries to course correct that and that you do care about the protagonist and the humans a little bit more because they're more front and center than the yokai monsters are but this yokai monster collection from aero video is a must-have in my opinion if it is still in print by the time this episode comes out because i know it was quite popular i would urge you to pick up your own copy and in addition to that if they ever do release a standard edition release uh i would urge you to pick that up as well so please pick up the yokai monster collection from aero video And that's going to do it for me this month on Physical Media Isn't Dead. It's undead. Uh, it'll return to Physical Media Isn't Dead. It just smells funny next month with our November titles. I've kind of alluded that we had some other international boutiques wanting to join us, but I did just get a, a shipping notification saying that something is uh, coming in from Australia or Austria. I can't quite remember right now. So I would assume it's one of those. So please stay tuned to that. But it's been a pleasure doing that this this month, as I do every month. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this very special edition of this month's installment. I will be back again next month, like I just said. But until then, please have a happy Halloween. Uh, stick close to your loved ones. Have a good time. Stay safe out there, even though it's a time to be thrilled and chilled. Uh, I'd like to have all of you tune in next month. So I'll see you at the movies. Good night.